Luke chapter 1. One of those times, Monday I started off and the message went all over the place. Because I had this idea, and even sitting on the front pew as I I do my little jobs during the play and stuff, I was... All, the, this thought was coming into my mind, and the, the Lord was intriguing me with a question. And I'm gonna—I'm glad this prop is sitting out here because that was the whole thing. We—we've said this before, and we've almost downplayed this so much. But let me ask you the question: Why the manger? Why a stable? And the cliche answers come back, and people will say over and over again. Because there was no room in the end. I, I know that's the answer, but can I give you a deeper answer that is just as true? The deeper answer is because he chose the manger. It, Jesus, God didn't go, man, oh man, there is no place for them to stay tonight. I, I, I hope something works out. No, it, it was planned way ahead before they even got to Bethlehem that he chose the manger. But just stop and start thinking about that concept of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, creator of all, choosing the life that he lived. And every bit of it, every detail, it was on purpose. And so I, I, I want to kind of walk you through that this morning. And, and this is almost going to be more like the, the kids are in Sunday school. I'll be honest, this is probably going to be closer to a Sunday school lesson this morning than it would be for preaching just because of the direction that God gave me and the more that I, I was researching this and getting into it. And, and so we're going we're gonna to look at these passages but, and, and still walking you through some points. But the, the point number one I want you to show you was his, his life of humility. And I'm not saying his, his actions because we'll, we'll teach the life of Christ and we'll pull something out and say, look at there, look at the action of humility that he displayed. It wasn't an action of humility there wasn't a bit of Christ that wasn't filled with humility from, from beginning to end. And I, I want to kind of just walk you guys through that, make you guys think this morning as we get into this, uh, of how he, if we were to examine his life, how he showed in every detail of his life humility. And we're going to start with his mother. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall be uh, call me blessed. The, the low estate or the poor condition uh, of this girl. Without a doubt, we know from the story of, of pulling out the details of the life of Christ, even starting back at the very beginning, they were not rich at all. He was not, even though he was king, he was not born into uh, royalty. He, he was not placed on a throne. He was not welcomed by kings until the Magi uh, approached two years later. But the lowest state, and she is acknowledging this. And I love the fact that not only did Christ live this life of humility, but he chose to deliver his message through those that also lived a life of humility. And then I think that's the message that I really want to get across to us, and I'll tie this back in at the end, of if we're wanting to know who God uses or how God is going to use us as a state, as a church, it's not because we are all that or we have arrived. And, and it's so cool of seeing some of the people, I, I think it was Mrs. Dunoff that we were talking to after one of the plays, 
uh, one of the nights, I think it was Friday night, and we were hanging out after church, and she said, you know what, I, I noticed that she says, we have a lot of people on the stage doing things that I've never seen do things before in, in those roles and stuff. And I said, yeah, I said, it's neat to see how many people stepped up. And it's not a matter of, we went to Hollywood and recruited a bunch of professional actors. It was just a matter of God working through humble servants that said, just like she did, my soul doth magnify, my spirit rejoiceth in God, for he regarded me that is of no big deal, of nothing to offer, of no recognition in this world whatsoever, but you chose me, lowly servant, to honor thy great name. No money to even offer. Can you imagine not having the provision that God deserved, but God yet still chose her and blessed her and honored her? We sometimes feel so insignificant. But it happened, just like the manger, Mary was chosen by God. You go to Joseph, who was a simple carpenter. The Bible does illustrate him that he was a man of integrity. But... How in the world would you feel if you were the, the man, the leader, the one in charge to do all of this and you had to deliver your child in a stable and in, 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 in the, not the comforts of what you would expect to be brought for a king? You get into the, the actual stable experience and I'm just walking through. These are the things the Lord laid on my heart as I just started thinking and I, I walked through. He was, he was born in a stable and he slept in a feeding trough. How many of us feel like we can't be used or you're, you'd be ashamed if somebody even came to your house because your house doesn't level up to somebody else's house? You're afraid to where you're going to park when you drive into church because your car isn't as nice as everybody else's car because it's got rust or banged up or beat up or whatever it is. Start thinking, where, where does that attitude come from that I don't measure up because in God's eyes, you do measure up. We, we pull back. In our sin, if we will, we pull back because of what man thinks. And if we're going to wrap this into a word that, that, that we're, where I'm going to with this, that word, if we're going to be honest, is the word pride. We all have it. His first clothes were swaddling clothes. If you were to study that out, those were burial clothes. His first visitors that worshipped him were shepherds. They were the last guys that would normally find out about the coming or the birth of a king or royalty being born or anything like that. They would never be invited to come and kneel and worship. But they were the first ones that God chose to tell to invite to worship. Poor shepherds. Franklin in the play, well, let me tell you, Franklin does a dynamic, awesome, over-the-top job at being the maniac of Gadara. If you've not seen him in that role, and uh, we, we had the idea to use him from that because he played in the uh, youth rally. And I, I don't know if Franklin's here right now or not, but um, I don't know. How, is that a compliment to say you make a, a great maniac of Gadara? <laughs> I don't know. He's like, well, thank you. Well, I don't know how to take that. In that, he screams out something that I went back after the play. It was one of those things that I thought, wow, it's one of those things that I've never researched before, and it, it intrigued me about it. But he says in there, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Thou Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, I know this city was often connected to, to the person, and that's how they would associate. I'm, I'm Joseph of Arimathea, and the, the different people that was there because of, of the names and the association with the town. I know that, so don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to overlook the, the tradition of that. But over and over again, they referenced him, Jesus of Nazareth. Once again, let me say that Jesus chose the manger, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, everyone that was there. Within Galilee itself, Nazareth barely was even registered. Up to a certain point, they said in time that it didn't even make the map. This insignificance led to some skeptics, whether in, in, in the first century, if it, if it even was a real city. It is believed that Nazareth was a village no more than less, or believed to be less than 500 people that lived there in the days that Jesus grew up there. The reason was is because Nazareth was 16 miles southward of the Sea of Galilee. Because it was not near the Mediterranean Sea, it wasn't well-traveled. Because it wasn't well-traveled, a lot of people didn't stay there or live there or, or was even attracted to be there. It would be... In the eyes of us, and I'm afraid to even say this, uh, but it'd be like saying your name of West Virginia. Okay, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about nothing good comes out of Nazareth because it was an insignificant, nothing to be noted of, of a city. And, it, and I think if, if I was to stand before you guys today and say, I am Tony Liuzzo of Somerville, Alabama, none of you would turn around and go, oh, wow, he's from Somerville, Alabama. Now, now my mom here, she, she would be able to identify and go, yeah, that's, you know, that's where we live. But, I mean, during that time, they were like, what's Nazareth? You know, what, what's big out of there? But, but God chose that. And through all of his life, even to the point of dying on the cross, in John 19, 19, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. <clears throat> and the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It'd be like Tony Liuzzo of Somerville, Alabama, thinks he is president of the United States of America. It was done in mockery to God. But let me stop again. Our king chose Nazareth. Through the life of Christ, he owned nothing. He never took a throne. The disciples that followed him were the rejects that never were called by another rabbi or had the education to add up to be a disciple of somebody else. Yet God pursued them, tapped them on the shoulder, and said, follow me, and I can teach you to be like me. His reputation in the city was that he was a friend of sinners. He was betrayed for the price of a slave. And even at the end of his life, he died on the cross that was reserved, that punishment was reserved for the lowest of thieves. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. I'm not saying, we look at that and say, wow, humble beginnings. Every aspect of his life was that of humility. Not one ounce did he ever elevate himself. When he did a miraculous thing, he would tell them, go and tell no one until, because it wasn't his time to be known because there was a timeline that he was fulfilling during that. 
But never once did he say, go and, and, and praise me. And, and it was never about self-elevation. How important is it to be humble? I mean, studying the life of Christ, and I'm just being honest, and, and I know that this, this isn't one of those hoopla, preach hellfire and brimstone messages, but I got into this and I'm thinking, wow, is, is there something deeper to this? Uh, of, we, we say, man, it's so good. Oh, I love that humble spirit. That's a good quality to have. In it. No, I'm learning that that's the foundation of everything. It, it's not just a good thing. We cannot succeed if we have pride in what God desires. He said, if we will humble ourselves, therefore, in the sight of God, he will lift you up. So I take you from his life of humility to his lesson of humility. Because through all of that that he was doing, he was teaching us. It was more than just about being humbled. He was poured out. He was emptied of himself, of even his glory. Every aspect of what he did was always doing one thing, and that was pointing to the Father. And, and I got into this, and I'm thinking, why? Why was this so important? Because to me, if he was going to establish himself, and, and, and I'm, I'm telling you in my mind what makes sense to me. Now, now, you can Christianize this all you want, because some of us have heard this so many times in our life of born in a manger, died on a cross, born in a manger that we don't stop to evaluate that, but to just jump into that world of a lost person and, and take somebody that sits there and says, he was king of kings and lord of lords and he creator and he's the son of God. And then you looked at him and go, what? Where is the evidence of that? You just think about it. And I know it's even yelled out in the play. If you are king, if you are God, then, then save yourself. Why, why would, and they run through the audience and say, why would a king die on a cross? How, how does this add up to what he says and what he does? And, and I'm gonna, I, I want to show you something in the lesson that he was teaching us. As, as I was getting into this and it jumped out at me. I want you to go all the way back to Genesis because this is, this is where we get this from. All the way back from Genesis. This is our preaching Sunday school lesson this morning. You know the story. I'm going to set the, the, the person up in this story. There was a slithering snake named Satan. He was here on the scene. Now, we'd have to jump to Ezekiel to get some of the details, and I almost was going to do that, but for the sake of time, let me, let me just ask you the one-word answer. Why was Satan kicked out of heaven? Pride. And then we see that he's introducing sin into the world. It's pride. He, he tried to lift himself up to be equal with God. And then I answer the question, how did sin come into the world? And you say, well, well, they ate of the fruit and they disobeyed God and all that. But <clears throat> that's all true. But if we were to get to the root of the sin, and, and let's read it together, because I, I don't want to just say this is my opinion. Genesis 3, verse 3 but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, this is Eve speaking here, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she established and says, this is what God said. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. This is the lie. For God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as 
gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant in the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wine, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to read into this, but how often do we say she was deceived and she was lied to and everything, but the appeal that was there is you can be more than you are. You see that? See, the thing that God's not telling you, and let me, let me just tell you a little secret behind the thing, God knows that you could be like he is, knowing good and evil. God knows that you could be a God. When her eyes was open, and here's the thing, she began to look at the world differently. When pride comes into our life, we begin to look at things differently. And, and I'm, I'm going to pull this out, and I, I want to attack that issue of pride as we close this out here in a minute. But there is evidence of pride in our life when we lose compassion and we lose our need of God or our perspective of God. When that happens, you better look out because trouble is coming. And churches and pastors and people all around us fail and they fall and they step back and go, I don't know what happens. And it all comes down to one simple thing. We allowed pride to come into our lives. I looked up the word pride. The Greek definition means to inflate with self-conceit, to be high-minded, to in my mind, I think of myself, I deserve this. Why don't I get this? Why aren't you respecting me? I, 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 that's what it is, to be high-minded, to think much of yourself, to be lifted up with pride or to be proud. It means to bring attention to oneself, to elevate oneself. I, I looked it up in our dictionary, and pride is a haughty attitude shown by someone who believes, or often justifiably, that he or she is better than others. Let me hit you with this. As you, as you get into the story, and we often say, and we, we have this outline that we'll teach and we'll preach and talk about, there was the sin, and then there was the Savior. There was the problem, and then there was the antidote. Can I, can I draw the parallel? And I, I, tr I, I tried for all the, that time of illustrating the life of Christ, of humility and pride. You see, we can associate that sin with pride in the life of Christ or the Savior with humility. As we are drawing there, you see, when Christ showed up, he was the antidote to the sin or he was the antidote to pride. He showed up in every detail of his life to say, this is where you messed up, but this is how to make it right. Let me walk you through this in the same way that we did before. All the way back from the very beginning of 12-year-old Jesus found teaching in the temple. Mary and, and Joseph walk up and they're separated for those three days. He turns to them and you know what Jesus as a 12-year-old uh, uh, boy says to, to his parents? I must be about my father's business. You're going to see as you follow the life of Christ, every detail of the life of Christ was wrapped around him not pointing to himself, but stepping back and saying, Mom and Dad, I've got to do his will. I've got to do it his way. I'm here for one purpose, to do what he's called me to do. Some of you are already flash forwarding in your mind as you're thinking to the end of his life where he does the same thing. Jesus 
shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist. He introduces him by, or John the Baptist introduces himself as being, behold, the Lamb of God. I don't know about you, if, if I'm Jesus, and I show up to a crowd for the first time, and he's there to be baptized and begin his public ministry, and I show up, I would want, and I, I'm the Son of God, creator of all, I, I mean, all-powerful. Wouldn't you think that an, a proper introduction, behold, our creator, king of kings, he was introduced as the Lamb of God, the remedy the Savior. Behold our sacrifice for our sins. And it made me think of that verse. That he became obedient. Obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Obedient. Jesus was obeying his father. Because rebellion is what caused the sin to begin with. He's going to find out that the, the struggle that's always been there, that we have so much at the, the root of all of us, and you're going to say, point out, Pastor Tony, I, I, you could come into my office, and you're going to say, we have a problem, and I'm going to be, don't tell me, I already know what it is. And say, Pastor Tony, we haven't told you any, I already know what it is. It's pride. Say, so you don't know that, no, because you're going to find out that the root of all of our sin comes from one major thing, and that is pride that we have in our lives Christ was countering this with everything that he was doing Uh, John chapter 13 turn with me we're doing our little Bible study this morning what I love about this is if you're coming back tonight I want you to watch all this on the stage but look at it differently Jesus was baptized dove descended and the spirit of God come down do you know what God said about his son? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what I'm saying? As he was taken to that water, buried, raising again, even foreshadowing and foretelling even what, what was to come of his death, of I'm well pleased. We would just... Get in our hearts the lesson that we're learning from Jesus Christ uh, of the attitude of dying to self and living for him and not elevating ourselves or not making it about us. What did Jesus do in this passage? He, the, the disciples are arguing, and, and I've used this illustration before, of who would be the greatest, and he's heard all that. And then when he gets to dinner in verse 4, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments, which was... The only thing that he had that kind of separated was was his his symbolism of being a rabbi. And he took on the form of a servant at that minute. And he took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. You say, what was this? Once again, it was an outpouring of of God showing this lesson of humility. And I I don't know about you, if I was sitting there and... And, and, and me and Joe and Dave and us were sitting there and we were arguing about who was the greatest and Jesus came to wash our feet, I think I'd be quiet really fast. Christ was teaching them humility, teaching them, hey guys, this is so not about you. And when you make it about you, you take the focus off of him. Just, just remember that. 
When we start walking into any project, whether it's a drama, whether it's, it's something, vacation Bible school, or you working in a department or upstairs or Sunday school, whatever it is, when you start making it about you, you stop making it about him. And so often our, our conversations go into, well, I, 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 and it's all that. Have you ever looked at the word pride? There's a big fat eye smack in the middle of it. Pride makes everything about us. We continue on, and you don't have to turn there. I know I'm having to turn to a lot of passages in Luke 22, 41. The Bible says he was withdrawn about a stone's cast and kneeling down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing. Notice that. Jesus submitting, kneeling down, hands raised and lifted up to God. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But listen to these words, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What an awesome outpouring of surrender. As he sits there and says, God, whatever you want is okay with me. Even knowing what was before him. Father, I give you my life. It is yours. I surrender to you. No matter what it takes, all that I have, all that you want, I give to you. I don't deny the fact that we say this in church. And we sing this in church. But the question that I ask you is, do we live this? I I noticed how far he took it in and how he, he gave everything, even in his final hours, Jesus gave the example of humility, is they came to arrest him, and he opened not his mouth. He did not fight back. Even to the point of the people that were there to arrest him, he reaches up to heal them. But in our attitude, we'd be, I, I, I don't deserve this, and it's not fair. Everything in this life is about what I deserve or what's coming to me or what's owed to me. But not him. Thy will be done. We see his life of humility. We, uh, humility. we see his lesson of humility. But then I, I have to completely change this because I want to stop and, and gear it more towards us and talk about our problem with pride. Our problem with pride. Here these guys are that, that was walking in the shadow of the one that was displaying humility constantly. And in Luke twenty two twenty four, and it says, And there was also strife among them, which of them should be accounted as the greatest. C- can you imagine being Jesus and hearing these words? Uh, as, as they're sitting there thinking and talking about which one of them was the best of, uh, of those guys. And I don't, I don't know about you guys. Nobody says those words of talking about who would be the greatest in the kingdom without having to throw out there what makes you the greatest. It, you, you, they would have had to have been, well, I, I, I can recite half the teachings that Jesus said. Well, I was there most of the times that he's healed people. Are you kidding me? One time Jesus stumbled and I caught him. And I, I'm sure every one of the little things that they were thinking of, they were all sitting there thinking of what I have done, what I deserve, or what makes me the greatest. The truth of the matter what was in all of them was pride. And Jesus quickly countered this because he wanted them to realize that if they had pride in their life, they were no good for the service of God. 
I can tell you guys that I don't know the hearts of all of us here, but the one thing that I know that we all deal with is pride. All of us. Our flesh runs on pride and we all desire to be right. That's why we like to argue. Do you, do you guys know that? Some of you might even uh, went to bed arguing with your spouse or woke up coming to church arguing with your spouse. And, and I, anytime I say that, I always know who it is. Sometimes I throw that out there because there will always be one of these that happen. I just I watch for the nudges. And, and it, it's just that natural thing that's in us that we get into an argument. And I, I, I've read books about this because I don't know what that's like to argue with your spouse. But I've, I take notes from watching you guys. But, uh, but there's something that gets in your gut that, that I've, I've got to prove them wrong. And here's what happens, and, and I, this doesn't happen to you guys, I know, because I'm dealing with a very spiritual group here this morning. But as they're sitting there pleading their cause of why you need to listen to them, do you know what you're doing? You're thinking of your counter-argument in your head the whole time. Oh, oh, that's well, okay, yeah, you're Miss Perfect. Yeah, that's, you never do anything wrong. Oh, yeah, she's, she's about to hear what she did last week, and I'm going to recall every detail of every second of what you did. And then they come back and say, did you even listen to a word? I said, no, you didn't listen to a word you're saying. You're ready to prove that you are right. And in your mind, you were right. In reality, you're both wrong. Me, Pastor Dave, and Pastor Joe, it was a while back, and and it's just one of those things of being a ministry that you hear about other pastors that have messed up and no longer ministry. And there was uh, one that made headlines and all that kind of stuff that happened. And, you know, it saddens your heart. But you say, how? And no matter, every time that happens, we sit back and ask our question, the how did that happen? Because I'm dealing with someone that read their Bible preached on the very sin and did sermon series on the very sin that they've committed. They preach God's words, they've written books about this, and then they find themselves in the same thing. Because here's the thing, pride is in all of us, and all of us are able to fall. And the day that you have it in your mind that that won't be me, you have just established in your, to all the, everyone around you that you have pride in your life. As long as you're made up of flesh, you'll be made up of pride. You may not struggle with drugs and you may not struggle with gambling. You may not have one of these other addictions that people talk about all the time. But the one thing we all struggle with is pride. Paul got it when he said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwell no good thing. Pride is in our lives when we think that we cannot fall. Pride is present in our lives when we lose our compassion. Pride is in our life. We begin to put ourselves above other people. And this is how we do it when we become critical. I, 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 preaching on this, I've had it in my mind. I'm sitting in a restaurant last night. And I'm, I'm staring over at this, this teenage boy that's sitting there. And it just, it bugged me. When I first went in, this, this teenage boy bugged me. It bugged me. What, what he was doing, he had uh, this marijuana leaf on his thing. And, and it's just this, and I'm thinking, wow, you're pretty bold about doing that you know and just like you know just there's nothing in it. and I'm sitting there going I bet you I bet you that boy smokes marijuana I bet you he's on marijuana right now I bet you know I'm just going into all this and I'm sitting there thinking what am I doing that that dude's no better than I am 
And the only thing that makes me any different is the fact that I've met Jesus and maybe he hasn't. But I'll tell you, when pride gets into our life and in that arrogance of I've arrived or I'm better, I know I this or that, that's where we've puffed ourselves up or we've put ourselves on a little higher level than everybody else of I can't believe they did that. They're probably sitting over there looking at something in your life saying, I can't believe they did that. There's none of us, none of us that are above sin or falling are faults. And as fast as you can point out somebody else's faults, they can point out your faults. But we're really good about pointing out other people's faults. Pride is evident when we cannot admit that we're wrong. When you get to the point where you cannot say, I'm sorry, I did wrong. And I've had people tell me that we got into an argument and he said this about me. And, and I, it's, it's been 20 years and I've never let it go. That's pride. Sorry to tell you guys. And it, it, it's, it's everywhere. Every time there is division in the church, there is pride. Because there's an attitude that says that I am right and they are wrong. And I refuse to get it right. Pride is when we quit relying on Christ for everything. When we quit walking with the Lord, when we quit thinking that we need church, that we need to read our Bibles and we need to be faithful to God. And the Bible says, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When you think that you're a dad that can be a good dad without God in your life, then you're a dad that's about to fall on your face. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That that haughty spirit is an arrogance, a height, or a loftiness. The scary thing about all of this is just the fact that, and I, and I close with this, it's in all of us. And as I had that thought, and I looked at that, and I thought, why, why did he choose all that he did? And every detail of every aspect of his life was that of humility. That of going out of his way for others and that of lifting up Jesus Christ. You know, you know the thing that we should do in, in, in whether you have a ministry or whatever you do for the glory of God is make sure that we lift up the cross and when people see us, they see Jesus more than they see us. And that we're willing to keep going forward whether we're recognized or acknowledged or we're put on a pedestal. And no, if, ever, if nobody ever applauds us or any of those things that we're seeking for in that life, if you did it, then your satisfaction needs to come from God. Now, I'll counter this with that and say that there ought to be appreciation and love one towards another. But that cannot be the motive is what I'm saying. He was not born in a manger because there was no room in the inn. He was born in a manger because Christ chose to be born in a manger. And because of that, there was no room in the end. His desire was to obey and place the attention on his father and to fix that issue of pride that was brought in through Satan and through Adam and Eve from the very beginning. If we're going to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ, then at the core of all of us has to be a spirit and an attitude of humility that he might increase and we must decrease. 